Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Full Stack Radio podcast, where we talk to people in the software industry about everything from uh, user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam, as always. And uh, today I'm honored to be talking to Ryan Singer of Basecamp. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Hey. Do you mind describing just uh, what your role exactly is at Basecamp these days and what's keeping you busy? Well, plenty of things keep me busy. <laughs> um, uh, well, I started at Basecamp about 10 years ago, and uh, at the time we were a web consultancy called 37 Signals, and then we released Basecamp shortly, almost immediately after I joined within the first year. And uh, and my role has kind of shifted over, over the years. In the beginning, I was considered myself a UI designer, and then as we started to grow and as I started working together more with the programmers and trying to pull things together and make features happen, I got interested in, I guess, what you could call product management. But I became really interested in being the person who pulls code and design and business together and understands how it all fits together. And, um, and then we had a, in 2012, we did a significant redesign and a relaunch of Basecamp. At the time, we called it Basecamp Next, and now it's just base camp, you know, but it was a big redesign. And, uh, I did it. I had a big role in kind of managing that and, and running that. We had a, a lot of parallel projects and teams working to build an entire rewrite at that time. And, uh, I would say probably that was when I really started to feel like maybe this kind of product manager thing is, is, it's a fair definition of what I'm doing, you know? And, uh, and then at the same time, um, I'm working on some stuff right now where it's just totally new ideas for something new that we're working on. And so it's hands-on with UI one day, programming the other day, giving feedback to other teams on design ideas the next day, and meeting with, with Jason and David about the roadmaps over the last couple of days. So it's it's kind of all over the place, you know? So something like product management and a little bit of a dash of maybe a senior designer type role. Awesome. That's really cool. Um, so the reason I want to have you on the show originally is... I've read a lot of your articles that you've posted on your blog at fellpresence.com and uh, watched a lot of conference talks and stuff that you've given and listened to other interviews that you've done. And through your stuff, I got introduced to this idea of the jobs to be done way of thinking, like the Clay mm. Christensen stuff. And and while it's something that I don't think I fully understand at its core, I've really enjoyed listening to a lot of the conversations that have happened around it. Um, would you mind kind of explaining what jobs to be done means to you in your role and kind of why you're interested in it? Well, I met um, uh, a couple guys, uh, Bob Mesta and Chris Speck from uh, the Rewired Group, and they're based out of Detroit, and uh, they're kind of the ones who are leading this. And uh, Bob is a close collaborator with Clay Christensen, and uh, that's kind of where the original research, there's a, people tell a famous story about some research about milkshakes, uh, that is often the story that Clay uses to introduce jobs to be done, and this comes from some research Bob did a number of years ago. And uh, I became friends with those guys and just became fascinated by what they were doing and, and tried to, have been trying to learn from them and apply it. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't call myself an expert at all because what they're doing is um, they're doing a, a specific type of research technique where they are trying to learn what it is that people are really um, why they buy your product and what they're trying to get it to do for them. And, um, and this is where we talk about the job to be done. It's like they, they hire the product to, to do a job for them. And, uh, the thing about it that, that really connected with me is 
there's so many folks in the software world who are just focused on features and it's like we get excited about a solution that we can build. You know, it, it'll have this and it'll have that and then it'll work like this and I'll implement it in this language and it's going to be awesome, you know. And the thing that's so fascinating to me about uh, what they're doing and the whole jobs to be done framework is they are trying really hard to understand demand rather than the solutions. They're really trying to understand like what people are trying to do and what problems are coming up and why people look for something to buy. And this kind of came up in a, in a, it's really started to become interesting to me about a year or two ago because Basecamp has been around for almost 10 years now, actually more than 10 years now. And uh, it was February, I think 2004 that we launched. And when we first released Basecamp in 2004, we knew exactly what it was and who it was for because we made it to scratch our own itch. We were a client service firm and we were doing design work for clients. And we had one, one person, Jason was the kind of contact with the client. You know, he would write back and forth to show the work and get the feedback. And then, uh, and then he would tell at the time, uh, myself and Matt Linderman were the other two employees. He would tell us what the client said, and then we would work on it and then give another round of design. And, uh, it became this kind of game of telephone, you know, where I didn't directly have the client's feedback and Jason had to keep track of all this stuff and it's all in his email and it's getting scattered. So, so we made Basecamp. It was like this, the idea was, you know, instead of having this in a bunch of emails, what if we just had a private blog between us and the client and we could just post stuff there and the client could post their responses there and then we would all have it in one place and it would be easy for us to all be on the same page. And uh, so then when we started selling Basecamp, we spoke about it that way. We said, you're working with clients and you need to get their feedback and, you know what I mean, like reviewing work and and communicating deadlines and all this stuff. But then what happened was over the years as people picked it up and, and used it in, in more and more ways, you know, there's definitely a huge chunk of people who are using Basecamp with their clients, but there's also churches using it, internal teams using it, uh, all kinds of people in all kinds of industries using it. And you can't just say Basecamp is a tool that designers use to do client work. It's, it's, it took on a life of its own. And so uh, if we want to improve Basecamp and make changes to it, it's like how, how do we define what Basecamp even is? Now that people are using it in so many different ways, you know, and so I became really interested in the jobs to be done approach because it's basically like, how can I talk to customers and actually get an answer that's going to help me understand what they're trying to do? And uh, so that's kind of where I started digging into it. And um, the, I suppose the main thing, um, the... I I don't know how to explain it that well yet (laughs) because I'm still learning. But the main thing that really struck me is that um, we often think that we're making a product in a, and we, we, in a category. So like we make a project management tool. So then we think, well, what is a project management tool supposed to do? And then we put those features on it. And then we think that whoever is shopping for it is trying to buy a project management tool. You know, it makes sense. Very normal sounding. Uh, but what I learned when I started to do some of these job to be done style customer interviews was um, people aren't really looking for a project management tool necessarily. They have something specific that comes up in their life 
And that event triggers for them to, to start looking for some kind of a solution. And, uh, and then they look around for something that's going to solve their problem. And then as soon as they can tell that it's going to be better then they, they stick with it. And, and it's so interesting because the, the event that tips off that whole process can be very different. And the way that they define progress can be really different. So, uh, for example, there is, um, uh, uh, one, one of the guys I spoke to is a robotics team mentor and he's got a, a team of students who are building a robot and they're doing fine. They meet once a week and everything's going well. Uh, but they, uh, he, he, nothing really happens during the week in between the meetings. So he feels like they could be performing way better if they stayed in touch. So he starts looking around for, uh, for some kind of tool where they can communicate, finds Basecamp. And tells the team, hey, here's this thing. You can post message on it in between meetings. And that way, when you're on your own and you're trying to shop for the parts or you're updating the drawings or whatever you're doing, you can bounce it off everybody else and make sure things are right. And uh, as soon as he saw that the students were actually communicating, they picked it up and they started staying in touch in between meetings. And they started kicking butt because they could keep going, you know, like it was like they met on a Monday and on Tuesday, they're picking up right where they left off and saying, Hey, I finished that drawing that we talked about. And what's the right size screw that we need for the new arm actuator and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, um, so that's a case where somebody, um, they, they, they started looking for, for a, a communication tool because they wanted to communicate more. And they wanted to do more because they thought that they were capable of doing more. And then as a result of that, they performed better and they were able to make a better robot. Now, you've got other people who come to Basecamp because they um, they have way too much communication all over the place. They've got 20 emails from 20 clients piling up in their inbox and they can't keep it straight. So they don't want to communicate more. They need a way to tame the beast of all this communication that they already have. So it's like, okay, well, what can I do? Well, you know, if I could, if everybody who was talking about the same client was talking in the same place, then I wouldn't be missing parts of the conversation and losing design reviews and, and all of that. I would have one place to go and I could see the whole story. Yeah. You wouldn't be forwarding emails to people, CCing other people in because some new topic came up that maybe this person's interested in or trying to do all this extra administrative overhead stuff. Right. Right. And, uh, and those are very different pitches uh, with uh, uh, different outcomes. And, uh, and, and neither of them are really well captured by saying we make a project management tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and looking, looking at a lot of these stories, one of the things that we started to notice was that um, people use Basecamp alongside a lot of other tools. But the special thing that Basecamp's really good at is if you have people who are kind of in different departments or who are working at different times. So if you're separated by time zones or you're not in the same building or you're in the same building, but you're in different roles in a project like the designer versus the programmer versus the account manager, it's, it's a place that can pull everybody together. And it's kind of this integration point or this, where it's, it's, it bridges the gap between people who would be hard to communicate with otherwise. And, uh, so this is just, so this is, I'm just sharing this as an example because the point of view is I want to talk to a customer about what they're trying to do and how they understand the problem and how they define progress. Yeah. And then I want to have this little picture in my head of this, this customer is like trying to get from point A to point B and how does my tool help them get to B? 
and 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 how do they define that you know yeah i think like one of the most powerful sort of analogies that i've heard that helped me understand this sort of uh you know 180 degree shift in perspective that i think kind of uh is what the jobs to be done way of thinking is kind of all about to me is the whole you know people don't want to buy a quarter inch drill they want a quarter inch hole yeah. So when you're building a drill and you think you're competing with other makers of drills and you're trying to make something that has these extra speeds or comes with these extra attachments or does all this other stuff, uh, when you think about it in the frame of the problem that you're trying to solve, you're not competing with other drill manufacturers. You might be competing with one of those little picture hanging things that sticks to the wall with a, a, a rubber s- sticker on the back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Someone's trying to hang a picture. They're not trying to necessarily even drill a hole. So right. And and that's been really helpful for me in trying to think about some of the my personal projects and stuff that I'm building and stop thinking about like the features that my product has and rather what are the problems that they're really trying to solve and how can I speak to those problems and how can I convince totally. them that what I'm building is the best thing to solve that problem. Right. You know, like a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, searching for uh, in some kind of I wanted something better than a um, freeconferencecall.com or whatever that is. I've got a group of people who are uh, volunteering for a big organization, and they all need to stay in touch, you know, maybe once a month or something like that. We have a conference call. And every time we do one of these phone conference calls, it's such a pain because you you can't tell who's there and who's not. And then people come in and it's like, ding, Bob is here. And it interrupts you 10 minutes after the call already started and all this stuff, you know, I mean, like these things suck basically. And, um, uh, so I started looking around for like, what is a better solution? And I'm looking at, um, WebEx and, and, and I, I searched for Skype for business and all these different tools. And they're all telling me about, um, how many video feeds can happen at the same time and the fidelity of it and all these different features. But, um, they weren't answering the questions that really mattered to me. Like, um, if, if I have non-technical people, are they going to have to install a plugin to use this thing? You know, like how, what, what is, what, what am I going to have to do to get adoption from all the other people? Cause if you want to do, get a conference call solution for your, the same 10 people who are always you're in the same company, you can have somebody take on the IT role and make sure that everybody has the thing installed, right? Or if they're having trouble, you can go over to their desk and help them. Yeah. But if you've got 10 people who are all volunteering and they're using different computers and different types of phones, and some of them are super tech savvy and some of them are not, what I, I know that a phone service is going to work because everybody knows how to use a phone. Yeah. But if I'm competing with the with the phone service on the basis of like, uh, cons- I don't know what you call it, like consumability or the ability for for the other people to absorb the product, like to to use it, uh, the, none of the marketing sites were talking to me about that. They weren't saying like the other the people on the other end will figure it out, yeah. <laughs> you know. And that's an example of where the the job to be done that I had was I need I need a way to conference a whole bunch of people in, um, in with a very low tech barrier. And I couldn't find a, a site that was talking to me about that problem, you know? And that's yeah. an example of where the thing that you're selling and the thing that somebody's trying to buy aren't exactly the same thing. So I think all this stuff where you read about jobs to be done and hear about job to be done methodologies, they're all about um, tools and approaches to correct that kind of impedance mismatch between what you think you're selling and what somebody's trying to buy. Sure. Yeah, I think like 
So the thing with the jobs to be done stuff is it's kind of come out of the marketing world, right? It actually came out of the product development world. Because the question comes, the, the, the classic story is, is, is there's the fast food company with the milkshake. Yeah. And they're not selling enough milkshakes. And what they're wondering is, um, do we make the milkshake thicker or do we make it thinner? Do we make it more healthy or do we make it more sugary? And those are like product development questions. And this is why I really like jobs to be done because as a product person, I need to answer those questions. Like, what are the features that I need to focus on? And I can't really answer those questions unless I have a definition of what the demand is. So the role of jobs to be done is to come in and give you a framework for figuring out how to, how to discover and then kind of um, pin down the demand in a way that is actually fitting to the facts on the ground. Because people use personas for this and they use all kinds of other things, but they don't work. Mm-hmm. So when people are... Uh, using this jobs to be done framework, which is like a specific interview process, right? For kind of finding out what the customers that you have hired your product to do. How do you think about jobs to be done in terms of like brand new product ideas where you don't have customers that are using your product already to find out why they're using your product? Is it still a useful frame of thinking? What do you get out of it in those situations? Yeah, well, the the first thing that I, I think could help to put it into context is Um, A lot of us who have been in the web world over the years, uh, I mean, I don't know uh, when you started, but when I I started, usability was a new thing. Like this whole idea of UX or user experience was this big new idea. And you had people kind of holding their flags and and their pitchforks and trying to storm the gates to, to change the world so that we actually had better usability. And it's not like that anymore. Like nobody's talking about usability anymore because the world figured it out that this is an important thing. And um, uh, and then if you try to actually define what usability is, uh, you had a, a handful of of approaches and tools and techniques, you know. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was a point of view and deciding that something was important is is the, what made the change in the industry. And I think that what's happening with jobs to be done is the same thing. So there are a few specific tools like the interview process and some data analysis things and certain questions that we ask and focus on. But um, more than that, it's, it's like you, the usability wave in that it's a new point of view where we're asking different questions. Because I think what a lot of us are noticing it's like, man, our sites are beautifully designed or our products are well-designed and it's not hard to figure out what they do. The affordances are clear. I understand the, how to navigate. You know, like the, the UX is good, but they're not doing the right things or I don't know like what they should actually be doing. And, and, and answering like what should it be and what should it do is a, more, is a deeper question than, than how can I make the interaction clear or how can I make this flow really clear? You know, so it's like it's the next step, I think, after after UX or after usability is to understand the job and to understand the demand better. So, you know, it's really about that point of view. And um, if, if I could, try, I, I, I'm trying to I'm still learning how to kind of boil this down so that I can talk about it, you know. Um, uh, and I, I would say that the the one thing that is really different about about jobs compared to everything else that I've read about or learned about is that it really focuses on the time dimension. You know, when people got into usability and all that, it was a lot about uh, looking at individual freeze frames. Like you look at a snapshot of a screen and you talk about the design and then you look at like dribble, you know, there's all these designers passing screenshots around. There's no, 
There's no online community where people are passing flows around, where they're talking about uh, um, sequences of events. And what, what Jobs is all about is that something happens in the real world that triggers uh, inner states in a person where they are trying to get something or they're trying to avoid something. So it's like um, the new iPhone comes out and then I, I really want that because I'm attracted to it. Or um, that's, a, that's a case of, of what's called pull or, or it's like attraction. Yeah. But another thing is um, I, I'm, I've been happily living in my apartment for years. I love this apartment. I never want to leave, but there's a baby on the way and there's just not room anymore. So I, it's not that I really want to change, but that something's forcing me to change, right? And the same thing comes up with software, with all kinds of things, you know? Um, and uh, uh, so like the client who's the, 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 the account administrator who has way too many clients because of a booming business and can't do it over email anymore and pulling their hair out versus the robot mentor who is, who is attracted by the idea of performing better and, and using even more time on the project. Yeah. So it's, it's, if you, if you start looking into the experience that the person is having without your product before your product is even part of the story, that's what jobs is about. UX is all about the experience of your product, you know, but jobs is about the experience before your product is even part of the picture because your product is just one among many alternatives in a consideration set that they can hire to do the job. Totally. It's interesting that you bring up the the sort of like dribble stuff and comparing like a static design versus someone showing you a flow or of some sort of interaction they designed or some sort of process that they designed the system. Because it reminds me of an opinion that uh, you had talked about in the interview you did with um, Intercom, where you were talking about the problems that you see with personas, right? Where personas are almost like that static dribble design uh, versus the situation that someone's in and the things leading up to that situation and things that are going to happen after that situation that cause someone to actually use your product. Related to that, I know like I've watched the uh, peep code play by play that you did a couple times and I thought it was fascinating because your approach to solving these problems was so sort of minimalist and lean and you've talked about how you don't really see a lot of value in wireframes and Photoshop mockups. And that's something that I think you guys kind of believe as a company at Basecamp and I've written about on your blog and stuff. Um, but at the same time, you're really into this jobs to be done stuff, right? Which is like a really deep kind of analysis of your customers and what they're interested in and stuff like that. So it, it's interesting because you're very clearly super into figuring out exactly what you need to build and the best way to build it. But you're also cutting the cruft away as much as possible. And that makes me really trust your opinions on things. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's nice. <laughs> Beware. <laughs> now I can start putting all kinds of uh, poison in the brainwash. <laughs> so I, I, I wouldn't mind getting your opinion on what you kind of think about some of the other like formalized UX processes that exist for trying to solve uh, people's problems. Like, have you read much about like the, Google Design Sprint, for example? No. Um, honestly, most of the time when I read about UX methodologies or design methodologies or research approaches or whatever, uh, I just get bored fast and it doesn't feel relevant. And and I think that this is this is my speculation, but this is just my, my guess. I think that um, a, a lot of research isn't actually hired to do the job of giving me insight. 
I think a lot of research is hired to do the job of making me look like what I'm about to do is, is safe to do. You know what I mean? Because a lot of the, the people who are um, spending a lot of their time doing research projects, they bring that research to somebody else who gives them resources, you know? And um, if you, if you're not going to somebody else with your, with your begging, with your hat in hand, you know, asking for resources, then what is the research for? What are all those fancy reports for and, and graphs and everything? Um, and I think that that's a big difference with, with a lot of the, the, the UX world versus the sort of what you talked about, this kind of cruft-free, get-down-to-the-point type approach. It's that if you're trying to get an answer in order for, to understand something yourself, the constraints on the problem are completely different than if you're trying to get an answer so you can make a case to get money from somebody else. And uh, if somebody, if the person who, who gives you resources just trusts your intuition because you're, you know, you're a Steve Jobs or something, then, then great. But, but most of the time what happens is we have a gut feeling about something and then we have to make a case. Yeah. And uh, so when I, when I see a lot of this user research stuff, it just feels to me like rationalizing something that, that was in somebody's gut somewhere else. I, I, I could be wrong, but it just, it just feels like that. And I read it and it just feels boring. But when I, when I got into the jobs to be done stuff, the subject matter of jobs to be done is causality. It's yeah. actually asking the question, what the heck causes people to do what they did? Why did this person at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday click that link? Mm-hmm. And that to me is such an interesting question, you know, because it's a real thing that's happening. It's like, man, why did they do that? What were they trying to do? It's interesting because it's like, yeah, like like you're saying, you're really like taking the cruft away from things and finding something like jobs to be done that actually delivers value for you as someone who's trying to solve problems in, in the best way possible. And you've sort of reduced all the other stuff down to this like sketching with a Sharpie and then coding HTML to to design an interface sort of thing. And that gets you where you need to go with the, the least amount of cost, basically, as far as time and resources and all that stuff goes. Do you ever do any other sort of intermediary processes when you're doing like UI design or trying to figure out how you want to solve a problem on the screen for someone? Or have you found like the sketch to the computer process is still by far the most efficient and valuable approach mm. for you to take? Um, I, I think that there's a, um, I've noticed that when I'm feeling lost, then I start going like rummaging through the toolbox looking for processes I can use. And then if I have a good gut feeling, then it's just full steam ahead. So um, I, there are definitely times where I kind of try to, I, I don't know what to do. So then I think, okay, what can I do analytically here? You know, and um, uh, one approach that I use still is um, it's an inspired from Christopher Alexander. And it's something that he talks about, um, pretty early on. It's in, it's in his, actually his first book notes on the synthesis of form. It's, um, where, uh, he just kind of spells out like, what are all the things that somebody's trying to do on this screen? Like, wait, if, if, or like, what are the things actually not even on the screen? It's like, there are, there's 10 things that I know that the user of this product is trying to do. And I don't understand which things need to be on which screen and which ones need to be on top of the screen and which ones have to be on the bottom or whatever, you know? And, um, and so sometimes I'll go through this exercise of spelling out all the things that they need to do. And then 
grouping them based on which ones have interdependencies with each other versus which ones are orthogonal to each other. You know, like, okay, there are these two things. They're always, if they're working on to-dos, then they're probably going to be involved with assignments. You know, they, they go together somehow, right? And, and that's an obvious case, but usually it's less obvious if I'm working on something like this. And then, um, and then just kind of getting a sense of which things have to do with each other. And then uh, another technique, and, and, then, and then when you have like three things that have to do with each other, then just design that as a standalone epicenter. That's what we call it in getting real. Just like a little piece of UI without knowing necessarily what all the Chrome around it is going to be or where it's going to live in a navigation scheme or whatever, you know? Um, uh, uh, You know, like, so I was working on a, um, working on a a donation system for nonprofits where they, they can uh, uh, accept monthly memberships from, from supporters. And there's a screen where uh, you need to edit the membership details like change the amount that you pay. And I, I didn't understand how people were going to access that and where it was going to fit in, but I'm thinking, okay, well, at least what needs to be on this form? If I'm, if I'm changing my membership details, what do I need? What do I need to change? And then, um, and then, uh, the, another tool is, um, comes from the jobs to be done approach, which is, uh, if I don't know what should be on this particular screen, then I'm going to switch my thinking from, being from space to time. So space thinking is like, I'm looking at a two dimensional thing and I'm trying to figure out where to put stuff. And time thinking is like, what happened before they got here and where do they go after they are here? And that's where it puts you back into that sort of job to be done thinking where it's like, what, what happened that made somebody let put somebody on a path where they were going to end up here anyway. And that helps you kind of decide now what is actually important about this screen. Exactly. Because the context of what they're trying to do then informs you for what affordances need to be there and how it needs to work. So then I can think, ah, actually, they probably need to change their member. They probably need to come here to change their membership details because, well, if they're changing the amount, it's it's probably either because they they, they noticed this on their credit card statement and they need to get rid of it. You know, it's like, I, I, I need to cut back. I need to remove this thing. Or um, they were just part of an event where there was some sort of fundraising push and they want to increase their amount. Let's say, uh, but the, the 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 case that became more compelling was um, where uh, their credit card expired, and they needed to update their own credit card, and that got me thinking. Well, how do they know that it got expired? And what I realized was that to date so far, there was an administrator type person who was monitoring the accounts, and then when the account d- dipped, to, when it started to look a little bit like the number was lower on a monthly basis, they thought, why? And then noticed that a few cards had expired, because the system didn't have any automatic notification about card expirations and stuff like that. So so, so then it's now, now it's like, oh, okay, well, we need a flow to notify people that their card just expired. Yeah, so instead of like, how can I make it easier, or what do I need to put on this form? It's like, why are people coming to this form to change their credit card information? It identifies a totally different problem somewhere else in the system that you can optimize for now that totally impacts the screen that you were about to design. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'm finding that is a really useful kind of, it's a really useful thing to, to switch from that space to time and start thinking through, well, what happened before, what happens next, and then let that let that push back on your idea about what you're working on. Yeah. And then you kind of switch back and forth between the two. It's like, okay, now I have an idea about what the flow is. Now I'm going to stop thinking about that. And I need to 
because you, you have to, you can't take it, you leave everything open at, the, at a time, you know? So then you have to say, okay, now I'm going to accept my assumptions about what the flow needs to be. And I'm going to go back to trying to make the puzzle pieces fit together on the screen, you know, and then just kind of alternating. Something that I think is kind of related to that, that you wrote a post about once was this concept of like affordances uh, versus styling. And yeah, it's something yeah. that really spoke to me as a developer who's not really a designer, but needs yeah. to design stuff sometimes and, and wants to get better at it. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of subconsciously, I've always thought about design as an artistic thing, right? And right. even though I knew deep down, like, I need to make things functional, I need to make things easy to use, th- that article that you wrote really helped me be able to make progress on my designs because it let me separate between what is here to look pretty and what how can i make this functional thing that i've designed you know aesthetically pleasing and what can i separate that is just important for conveying what the user needs to be able to do on the screen and that's not just about like what actions can they take on the screen that's like what should be biggest what should be smallest what should be loudest right what should be at the top what should be at the bottom and thinking about things that way has let me actually land on good enough designs that I can get help from actual, you know, graphic designer people who have more of that aesthetic skill set to flesh it out or use some of the like front end CSS frameworks and stuff that provide some of the nice looking stuff for you. So you don't have to really think about it as much. And, and that's been really helpful for me in making progress as that as someone who's more of a technical person. Do you mind uh, maybe giving some of your opinions about that? I think you summarized it really well. <laughs> you know, I, my fantasy version of this this subject matter, it I, I think about um, really cool looking jet airplanes. You know, like a like the Concorde or like SR seventy one or the Stealth bomber or whatever. The 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 shape of those airplanes is is totally dictated by the the forces that they're under. You know, like the shape of the wing and why the panels are, are in a certain position. It's all because of how the thing needs to fly. And you get really beautiful shapes, you know what I mean, just by uh, uh, starting from that point of view. So I, I, I just really, I'm really attracted to that. And, and um, also, I think uh, people come to it with different mindsets. And I'm not a graphic designer. I'm much more of a systems thinkery person. And uh, I think I think a lot of us who are actually working on software are more. We do have this kind of system thinker type type of angle, and uh, and it's just so easy to get lost when you start focusing on the color and the proportion and stuff like that. And this is where I, I think uh, if you if you have a really good sense that there's a burning itch that somebody has, and when you put this thing into their hands, it's going to solve their problem. It, it puts it in perspective and helps you to stop worrying about the corner radius on the button. But when you, but when you don't have that kind of itching desire in your mind that the user has, then you're, you have to kind of hope that if they see it, that they're going to be so attracted to how it looks and how it feels that it's going to make them interested in it, you know? And I think that that um, people who can do both, like that's amazing. You know, where where the, the hardware is or is so beautiful, like the iPhone, it's like such a beautiful object. And then you use it and it's totally well thought out and functional. Like, that's amazing, you know. But um, for me, it, I can just make more progress by starting on the functional side of it. Like, what does it need to do? And just really going at it from that angle. I feel like um, we don't really have a clear definition as an industry about what what a software product is in terms of its design. Because you've got a whole bunch of back-end code and you've got a whole bunch of pixels on the screen. And, like, what is it? 
you know, and, and which thing, what defines it the most and what's the essence of it or the core of it. And, um, I, it's a little nerdy, but, uh, I like to think that the, what the product really is, is something like a, like a topology or like a graph. And, um, the, the, the nodes are the different places that you can get to the different states that you can reach. And the edges are all the different affordances that you can follow. And, um, I've noticed that, uh, when we're working on like actually every, even every side project I've done, there are these decisions that you have to figure out about how the graph is connected for the product to even do what it's supposed to do. And, and, and you can redesign the skinning of it 20 times and it doesn't affect the underlying graph, you know? And, and I feel like that, I mean, as a pro, like, as programmers, we learn to, to focus on the rates of changes of things, you know, things that change at the same time versus different times. And, and to me, that's just kind of like, a it, it shows that it's uh, this focusing on the affordances is the right way to go, you know, because if you get those right, then you can iterate on all the other stuff over and over and over again. But man, if you spend two weeks trying to get that corner radius looking right, then you run out of time and then the, the code doesn't run, you know? So it's like, I, I don't know. It just, it just helps me. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think thinking about it that way definitely can remove obstacles for, for people like me who are not, you know, artistically inclined. So it's a really cool idea. Uh, one thing that is a little bit of a segue that I would like to ask you about is I've always worked in the software kind of consulting industry, doing client mm. work and building software applications for other people. Um, at Basecamp, you guys are fortunate in the sense that you guys have become successful by building products that solve your own problems. So it's really easy for everyone to be on the same page and understand what you're trying to build. And I mean, obviously, there's always work that goes into trying to understand what your customers really need. But at the same time, uh, you kind of all start from this common ground where you know we had this problem, which is why we're building Basecamp. But what do you find to be the best way to understand someone else's problem? Yeah. Um, I've done side projects that are tools mainly used by other people. And, um, uh, I think it's just as interesting and just as fun as building for yourself. It's just, um, it's just a little different. Um, you know, actually, uh, uh building for yourself is no guarantee that you're going to do it right either. You know, you still have to do this, this unusual move where you kind of bracket everything that you know, and you have to kind of you have to figure out how to look at it with this kind of beginner's mind, you know, where you think, well, what is somebody who doesn't know how it works going to see it? Cause even if you're building it yourself, you still know all the implementation and it's, you have to train yourself to not to ignore what you know, you know, and just take everything at face value. Like what is the screen telling me, you know? And, um, and that's, that's a basic skill that you need, whether you're building for yourself or you're building for somebody else. It's, it's, it, you need that either way. And, um, I think that um, there's a really great, uh, there's a book called Domain Driven Design. Yep. And uh, that was a really big inspiration to me. And I, it's one of my favorites as far as tech goes. And I think that has a lot of really good ideas when it comes to building for somebody else. Um, and uh, the job to be done framework is really useful in the sense that um, if you actually talk to all the players and figure out what are the what are the things that are coming up in their work in their lives that are making them try other things? Like what are the, what are the situations that come up with it where the, the energy that they have gets so strong that they have to change something? Cause nobody wants to buy a new software system or start using something different. Cause it's a pain, 
you know? And, um, I, I think that, um, that's, that's the really important thing to do is, is to, and you, so I suppose that there's some extra detective work if you're working for somebody else, but, um, uh, I think it's fun detective work to try and figure out what, what is the actual problem here? You know? And, uh, it's, I, I think it's really fun. Um, the, I'm just, I think it's good to be really skeptical of all those UX tools for trying to figure out what the problem is. Cause I don't think that many of them help you. And the, the, the main thrust of the job to be done stuff is if somebody's not emotional <laughs> about it, chances are that it's not a real problem. I haven't found the problem. And, uh, that's, that's one thing that can be helpful is if you're, if you're talking to somebody and you are, um, but first of all, I would recommend learning the interview techniques, uh, the, uh, the job to be done in interview techniques. Um, and, uh, and then the one, the main thing you learn when you start doing that is that if there's no emotion in it, there's not very much signal. Like, uh, it's when somebody says, I, if, if I didn't do something, the project was going to fall apart or I was losing my mind about it. Or, you know, I really felt like we you know, I really wanted to perform better. Like we had to do better. There had to be a way or something like that. You know, uh, that's, uh, or somebody's under pressure or whatever, whatever it is, like really getting at what's behind this. Like, why am I here? Why did they hire me? You know, and then trying to deliver what you can inside of that. So would you say like, like there's no need for like a week long process where you're doing these weird UX games or doing these running these workshops to figure stuff out. Like it sounds to me like what you're saying and what I think I believe is that the the fastest way to understand this stuff is just to sit down with someone and ask the right questions. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've heard from people who know better than me about research that there are also cases where there's no substitute for just following somebody around and watch what they do. Um, if somebody hires you in and says, I, I want to pay you to do something, then you should be able to, I think it's possible to ask the right questions to figure out like, well, what the heck happened? Like, what do you, what, how do you define progress? Um, because the, I think the biggest danger when you're doing consulting is that the way that the development team defines progress is different from how the client defines progress. And we have all these methodologies like agile that are supposed to help us keep in line with each other. But agile is basically saying, talk to each other all the time or check in frequently. It's not giving you tools to define progress. And, uh, so the jobs to be done point of view is more about how do I actually understand how the, how my customer is defining progress so that I can put myself in their shoes, you know, cause it might be that you can come up with a great, great technical solution for what you understand is really the problem, but maybe they don't want to solve the real problem and they just want to report the right numbers to somebody else so that they don't lose their job. Yeah, you have to find out what their problem is, right? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another thing, it's interesting that you brought up the domain-driven design stuff because that's actually something I wanted to talk to you about because I've heard you mention it before. And that book is actually t picking up a lot of momentum again in the development community. But I'm, oh, really? Yeah, and I'm finding a lot of people that I talk to about it are taking away different things from it that I think you would take away from it. A lot of them are coming away from it with ideas for technical patterns and stuff like that. Um, uh -huh. And I... I'm really interested in what you as someone who's more on the product design side of things got out of that book and what you thought was valuable in it. Um, that's a good question. You know, um, there's something very, I don't have a good answer other than like this feeling I get from it. There's something very full stack about ubiquitous language, for example. Mm -hmm. And, uh, man, that's a good question. Um, 
I guess that what, what, maybe maybe two things come to mind offhand. That uh, one one was that um, I, I really liked the idea that um, the the development team should really deeply understand the domain, and that that their that the tool should somehow naturally um, speak the language of the domain, and and there is a. There's a there's a thing that good programmers do that I've noticed, or basically anybody who's a good modeler, where they resist implementations that that work when you run them, but that don't look that aren't recognizable when you look at the source. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. there's always the guy who will write the crazy Perl script, and the crazy Perl script will will do exactly what it's supposed to when it runs, but if you look at it, it's not calling out the the anatomy of the domain in a way that you can reason about it when a problem comes up it's like when the customer calls you and they say we have a problem with billing you want to open up the source code and you want to see something like a like a world map and there's a country on it that says billing and then you want to have the phone number to the ambassador for that country or something you know what i mean like and and i feel like that that is a value judgment about what good code is and uh and that's uh, one of the core ideas of domain driven design is that you should have some kind of parity between the the world inside and outside. And so that's really attractive. The other thing that um, was really beautiful to me was that I remember, I think it was Evans. Uh, he's the author of it, right? Eric Evans, yeah. I think. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think it was him where he says something like a, a good, a good code base is like, um, it's like a really well-worn leather jacket where the, it has these creases in the elbows you know, like the places where it bends all the time are extra stretchy. And uh, the way that he articulated that, I, f- I feel like, I just feel like that's kind of where his head is. And and when I when I read that book, I feel like I'm hanging out with somebody whose brain is wired like that. And that's just a brain I want to hang out with. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like some, that's what, I, that's what I like about Christopher Alexander so much too. There's, there's not very much stuff that I can directly map onto my daily work. But but when I read his 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 books, it puts me in a headspace where um, dots connect in a way that seems really constructive. You know, so I, it's kind of an abstract answer, but that's the best I can do. I think. Awesome, cool, man. Well, I know uh, you got to get going, so thanks so much for coming on. It's it's been really awesome. I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to talk to you, and it's something that I really wanted to do for a long time. So this has been awesome. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Uh, so anyone listening, uh, show notes for this episode are going to be able to be found at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash five. Uh, if you have any feedback, let me know on Twitter or via email. And if you could leave a review on iTunes, that'd be awesome. See you guys next time.